Hello, I'm Scott Sostek. On this week's show, we'll explore the big money issues in the world of sports and talk to some of the biggest players in the industry. Michael Barr will join me later when we speak to our guest, Jerry Cardinal, managing partner at Redbird Capital. But first, let's get into the top stories of the week. Joining me is Bloomberg Sports Business reporter Eben Novi williams Eben, let us start with, are you ready for this one? Lay it on Porn, me. Porn, Major League Baseball, and Facebook. Love it. It's a problem. <laughs> I assume you're referring to the, the, the porn know bots you know that, what are, that are popping to. up in the comment section of the yeah, in exclusive the MLB game, games. Somebody noticed that some porn bots had been soliciting commentary on the side screen of the telecast. And I don't think Major League Baseball had that in mind when it talked with Facebook about adding some sort of social component to its broadcast. Yeah, it's funny. The uh, the chat screen, which which you can close, you don't need to have it up when, when the game is on, seems to be the most polarizing part of these MLB broad- broadcasts. That's just from a I love it or I hate it point of view. Yeah, and it, and it is, again, I think this is kind of a generational thing, and I'm on, I'm on your side. I, I don't like it. I swipe uh, it away as soon as I can. I didn't mind. But, you know what? I didn't yeah. mind the commentary. What I minded were the floating emojis going over the screen. And I couldn't find the shutoff. I believe they call it the the quiet. Yeah. Yeah, but I finally did. Yeah. Um, but you're always going to have, when you have a, a social stream like that, you're always going to have, whether or not it's a porn bot or it's somebody saying something that might be a little inappropriate. We've seen it on SportsCenter when they choose to, to take fan tweets and they don't realize that the fans... Twitter handle has something sexually explicit or something offensive in it. Uh, it comes with the territory to me of having this inclusionary social media aspect that you're going to end up having some possibly unsavory comments or commentators that are that are saying things that maybe baseball doesn't want to have. An acquaintance of ours on Twitter had said something like, it doesn't belong there. And I know he's a hater. He's an old man. He's a hater for the whole experiment. But said, I want to guarantee if you're going to have it on Facebook, I want to guarantee that you're not going to get stuff like this. So I tweeted back at him like, a guarantee, sort of like Timberlake Jackson halftime show. Like that was on Facebook, right? That there kind you of go. guarantee. Yeah, I mean, you're gonna for people that, that view these live streams all the time. You have people that are pitching their own mixtapes. You know, wanna be rappers that are. You know, there's there's always people that are using public forums like that to try to pitch their own business. So this happens to be a, a a porn bot, but you know, this is unavoidable in some cases. Facebook obviously doesn't want it. MLB doesn't want it, but but they're never gonna clear it totally. They're all working on getting it straight. Uh, also working, let's get this, Fanatics, mm. rivaling Adidas and Nike. And I didn't see this coming, that they signed a kit manufacturing deal with Aston Villa. And for our listeners who are not located in the U.K., kit means uniform. <laughs> it's sort of your jersey and your your stuff. Yeah, Fanatics is using the, the, the full uh, direct-to-consumer model that they have here in the U.S. They're taking that over to, to the U.K. for the first cheaply, time. Right? Exactly, yeah. And and a couple years ago when Leicester City was the most important f- football story of the past, that I don't know, like 100 years, um, Leicester City ran out of uniforms and T-shirts to sell and in, there was nothing in, available in November. Right. You couldn't even get it in Christmas, let alone the final three or four months of the season. Uh, Fanatics, we've talked a lot about them and, and the, the framework they have here. They saw that and they were astounded by the fact that you could have the, the most compelling soccer story in a long time and yet not have any merchandise at all to sell for the final couple months of the could season. Could you imagine that ever happening with the U.S. sports team owner? I mean, you, you know can't. they'd be ready. And that's why you think some of the owners like Josh Harris, that they're getting involved in ownership over there. Because exactly. The, their words, not mine. The sports marketing aspect of sport is a decade behind. Mm-hmm. Exactly, uh, and and Fanatics bought Kitbag, which was a soccer retailer over in the UK. They are fully expecting to take the model they have in the US uh, and move that over to 
the UK, and Aston Villa, which is a, a proud club that is not in the Premier League right now, might move up uh, if they play well over the final part of the season. But they're, they're the kind of the, the testing ground, the first, the first client. So you give me easy segue. Speaking of testing ground, NBA 2K has launched. Watch it on Twitch. Looks like the opening broadcast <laughs> drew 9,000 viewers. Do we care about the first broadcast? Isn't it an indication of anything, or they're just happy to be experimenting it on the platform? Yeah, I mean, I think from a holistic view, you care about the first broadcast because it's supposed to be the highest one, right? I mean, if you look at MLB Facebook deal that we talked about earlier, the first game, that Mets-Phillies game, got a lot higher like numbers. Like your just people exactly. who want casual. Exactly, got a lot higher like. numbers than they're getting right now. Uh, certainly 9,000 is not a number that is going to be uh, tremendously profitable it's probably not the ideal number that that major uh, that the nba and and the esports league are looking for but as we've said many times the nba isn't getting into this right now to turn a quick buck they understand that the, the product they're putting out there from an esports perspective is maybe not even all that popular to traditional esports fans you know but these teams are selling digital courtside ads they have official partners now that do their headsets and their controllers they have jersey sponsors in the in the digital jersey they learn by doing and they're doing yeah they are there's a lot of there's a lot of marketing possibility here for teams so whether there's nine thousand people watching or or ninety thousand they'd obviously prefer the higher number but they're not in it right now to, to to put out tremendous numbers on twitch all right Eben, we'll see where it goes from here my thanks to bloomberg sports business reporter Eben Ovi williams now michael barr and i get into our interview with redbird managing partner jerry cardinal Scott, Jerry has quite the resume. He is the managing partner and chief executive officer of Redbird Capital Partners. Jerry retired from Goldman Sachs after a 20-year career where he was a partner of the firm and a senior leader of the Merchant Bank's private equity investing business, which managed over $100 billion of private capital across equity, debt, real estate, and infrastructure investment strategies. Over the course of his career, Mr. Cardinal invested across a range of industries and developed a particular track record and expertise in the media, entertainment, and telecommunications industries, as well as in sports and sports media. Jerry, thanks for joining us. Yeah, good to be with you. I want to start with your presence at the Milken Conference. More and more, you're seeing people affiliated with sports who like to attend. You were the moderator for a panel. Who was on your panel, and what did they want to talk about? Yeah, you know, it was a great panel. Uh, I, uh, when Mike Milken asked me to do this, I uh, asked if, uh, for one thing, which was the ability to choose the panelists. Uh, and I was really pleased with how it came together. We had Jonathan Kraft, uh, obviously the president of the New England Patriots. Uh, we had Josh Harris, uh, who is the managing partner of the Sixers, Devils, and Crystal Palace. Uh, we had Casey Wasserman, uh, who's the CEO of Wasserman Media Group. But as I think everyone knows, done a remarkable job bringing the Olympics back to Los Angeles in 2028. Uh, and we had Don Garber, who's the commissioner of MLS, who really has just done a spectacular job with, with that whole league since, his, since coming on board in 1999. So how do you feel about three of those four panelists have been guests on this show? Is that right? <laughs> I'm not surprised, Scott. <laughs> <laughs> you have the following. Uh, you know what I love about Jonathan Kraft, though? He may be one of the most powerful people in the NFL because, not because of the Patriots and their good and their history of winning, because he chairs the digital committee. If you're looking at the future of football and look no further than this re-up deal with Amazon, he will have a lot to say about how the future of the NFL is shaped, will he not? I, I absolutely agree. I mean, Jonathan, in a lot of ways, is, is the owner of the future. <clears throat> you know, he's, 
he spent, you know, we, we talked about uh, how his family bought the Patriots back in 1994 in the 20-year trajectory that you know, they've built this, this dynasty. Uh, and, you know, they're, they're, they're so far ahead just in terms of winning performance, all done under a league system that's designed to keep that from happening. Uh, but Jonathan, you know, is he, he's a great statesman. Uh, he, he's an amazing human being. But uh, to your point, you know, he has been very good at keeping pace with developments and evolving as these things go. Obviously, when they bought the Patriots in '94, it's a very different world uh, than than we have today. But even with um, we we, talk, we touched briefly on data and analytics, and I think you know they've created a, an amazing data company uh, behind Jessica Gelman. Also, has been a guest yeah. on this show. We love Jessica. Really cutting edge stuff. So it's very impressive. You're, you're absolutely right, and he's he's terrific. I think we will see more from him and more leadership from him um, at the league. What do you think is the secret sauce then for those Patriots in a league designed for parity? Is it the football operations that they see things differently? Is it that they paid like three hundred and something million for their stadium and they don't have a lot of debt, so they can win off the field, on the field? What is the secret sauce there, as far as you can tell? You know. It's funny, you know. I, I, I'm I'm by no means an expert on that part of of the sports ecosystem, but as a fan, uh, I think about that a lot. And I would tell you they should be doing business Harvard Business School case studies on that organization. Uh, it sounds trite, but I would tell you culture is a huge part of it. Uh, and you know, and they they don't really they don't get emotional about the business. You know, they're very disciplined. Uh, you'll see, you know, as, as as they're starting to now face player turnover. Um, rebuilding is probably too strong of a word, but you know, as a fan watching these guys, I mean, they're just incredibly disciplined. And I got to tell you, I use I use Belichick's ethos even in my own firm, which is you know, if everybody does their job, then the collective whole will win. You know, that in today's world, where I think there was a headline this past week that you know Lionel Messi just won a court fight uh, to uh, ensure that he um, registered himself as a trademark. Right in a world where these individual players are becoming brands themselves, um, the sum of the parts is is you know what's going to distinguish these teams. They have a culture that you know Belichick and and the Kraft family have instilled, which is it's not about the individual; it's about the collective whole. It's really impressive. Talking about the NFL, you have a connection to location experiences. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, look, on location um, is really it's been a twenty year journey, and when when people ask me that question. Um, I really have to put it on the transom of the 20 years that I've been investing in sports. You know, I started with the Yes Network in 2001. Um, I then uh, helped the Cowboys and the Yankees put Legends Hospitality together in 2008, 2009 around their stadiums. This is really just a continuum on that trajectory where the fan experience, I think, is now the last frontier. Um, Monetizing the fan is something that is very, very hard. Uh, creating businesses around the live event is something that really hasn't been done before. You know, we basically have grown up in a culture, it's a build it and they will come culture. Uh, you think, you know, in, in the good old days, right, you'd build a stadium, you'd sell tickets, people would come, and it took care of itself. Today, you know, as you guys know, technology and technology disintermediation has led to a huge fragmentation in consumption, media consumption. Um, you have the millennial phenomenon overlaid onto that as well, and it's not. You know, and and then on top of it, you've got this escalation in asset values for teams. You know, when you put that all in the mix, uh, team owners and leagues have to work so much harder 
to make a compelling value proposition to fans to come out to the game, stay for several hours, uh, and then if they're doing it right, they'll follow that fan you know, out of the stadium and they'll have an engaged uh, connectivity with them. So on location was really, you know, when if you looked at yes being the monetization of the intellectual property of the New York Yankees, and you looked at legends as being the monetization of the intellectual property of those two stadiums, what NFL on location was about is, you know, could we create a live event experiential business that monetizes, you know, this last phase of uh, the economic stream, which is fan engagement. We're talking to Jerry Cardinal, the managing partner and chief executive officer of Redbird Capital Partners. And I also want to ask about the Yes Network, which you talked about earlier, and what it takes today to make something like that stay number one, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Um, again, you know, I go back to um, number one is, is elusive today. The, the targets keep moving. The parameters keep moving because of um, new media, technology disintermediation, and the way media is consumed. Um, you know, I, I'd say first and foremost, you know, everyone talks about content being king. When we launched Yes, uh, we, it was interesting. You know, we actually signed the deal for Yes on September 10, 2001, and we were, we were set to announce it the next day. Um, there was we didn't there was no business plan there was no precedence uh this is pretty much in the domain of corporates uh and this was george steinbrenner to his immense credit <clears throat> saying that you know wait a minute we, you know we are the ones that are the content owners we are the ones that are taking the risk to put these compelling teams on the field year in and year out why are we getting a fee for the consumption of that content why are we not owning that and and george's view was that if we were able to capitalize that uh, put a multiple on it, uh, theoretically at least, his view was that it could be worth more than the team. Uh, and, and, you know, so it hasn't, you, you haven't, one of the questions that's really interesting is why hasn't that been done since you really haven't seen another yes network uh, since we did this in 2001. And, you know, look, I'd say um, it, that's really a function of uh, the corporates, the, the media companies kind of woke up and they said, you know, wait a minute, this is our domain. We, we shouldn't be disintermediated by private capital. I would say, you know, there's a lot of risk attached to it, and, and, and all the credit in the world goes to the Steinbrenner family and being the pace car and the trailblazers and things like that. It's not, that's not for everyone. Uh, but it comes back to the final point, I'd, I'd say, which is that, you know, this concept of content is king. If you ask me what was the business plan, I, you know, I wrote a business plan for yes, but at the end of the day, you know, it was spreadsheet math. What, what ultimately we were relying on in the ultimate investment thesis was that in the tri-state area of 8 million people, New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, that the New York Yankees were going to get carried. And it, somehow it would figure itself out. So, you know, that is, I would say there is no better must-carry content in that tri-state area than the New York Yankees. Uh, and, you know, when you see ratings for the Yankees and Red Sox when they play, it, it, it outpaces just about everything. So that's, that, that really ultimately is the punchline. Today it's just a lot more com complicated that you just, you know, no one really knows. If I were doing this today, I would tell you I would really pause even, I mean, you know, hindsight, so you have the benefit of hindsight. If I, if I knew what I knew now, you know, would I have done yes back in 01? I don't know. I mean, that, it, it's amazing what we were able to do. Today, uh, geez, I'll tell you, it's, it's, uh, how, do you, how do you credibly even spreadsheet math your way to a five-year or ten-year underwriting on, you know, when you don't really know what the carriage is going to look like or how it's going to be carried? So, you know, it's a brave new world, but, you know, there will be more Steinbrenner families out there who will you know, continue to reinvent this. A scary world, and we're chatting with Jerry Cardinal of Redbird Capital. And, Jerry, I point to Stan Kasten, who's been a guest on this show as well, 
with the Dodgers. I mean, all the math works out because they were guaranteed payment from Time Warner, regardless of carriage. But how much damage is done if you're getting the money, but I'm the Dodgers and my fans locally cannot see me play? I mean, that's a big risk. Yeah, it is, and and that's that that's the Faustian bargain here, Scott. Which is that uh, you, you can't you can't have a unilateral or, or um, shifting of risk. It, there has to be a shared risk ecosystem, uh, and you know we struck that sort of fulcrum, if you will, uh, between the team owner, the network, and um, the distributors. Um, and you, you can't have a, the situation that happened on the West Coast. Maybe was. You know, it was a shifting of risk, and, and my, hat, my hat's off to the owners of the Dodgers for what they were able to pull off. But at the end of the day, uh, the one thing the Steinbrenners taught me is the fan has to come first. And you can't have a situation where a bilateral shifting of risk leads to any kind of diminution in access, experience, uh, availability of, of the content. At the end of the day, we all have to realize in this very big money world that a lot of this is a social good. Uh, you know, we, we, we dealt with that when we were going through our um, formation at YES. Uh, and, you know, if you remember uh, Cablevision, you know, we had a spat with Cablevision that we had to work through in the first year. And I think, you know, one premise that we had was at the end of the day, this is, you know, the baseball is America's pastime. It's a social good. Uh, and, and everybody in that ecosystem, even though they may be on other sides of the table, has some some minimum responsibility to effectuate and and uh, you know um, meet that social good. So you got to keep that in mind. Sometimes it's it's a lot harder with these big stakes that we're dealing with today. We're chatting with Jerry Cardinal of Redbird Capital, and Jerry, I'd love to say the fans always come first when I go to sports, and you don't have to name clubs individually here, but I don't get the feeling that fans always come first to professional sports franchises. Do you? Good question. You know, going back to the earlier question on uh, on location and what we're trying to do there, um, that's, that's going to be really critical. You know, I mentioned something earlier uh, about a value proposition, and I think what has to be more and more in front of rights holders, team owners, leagues, is making sure that you're delivering a credible value proposition to the fan. Uh, you know, the concept of the fan comes first, has, has evolved, has gotten more complicated. What does it mean? In my view is that, you know, what's happening here, when you have these, these, these teams today are all multi-billion dollar, multinational entertainment companies. It's that simple. Uh, and in order to, you know, continue to feed them, um, they've got to bring in revenue. And they bring in revenue through media consumption. They bring in revenue through the, the gate, the tickets. Uh, they bring in revenue in stadium. Uh, and, you know, the Things are going up. Prices are going up. You can't have a situation where the fan feels like they're not coming first if they're getting gouged at a stadium and the product that's being delivered is not commensurate with what they're paying. If the if the product is good, what we found with Legends, if the project product is good, the fan will pay. And but but you know again, the Steinbrenner family taught me you know don't cross the line where you're not delivering the value proposition and the fan feels like they're not getting a reasonable deal. Uh, and that's what we're trying to figure out. You know, I'll, I'll give a shout out to Don Garber. Uh, um, uh, Sunday here in L.A., we went to the opening of the new LAFC Stadium, Bank of California Stadium, right next to the L.A. Coliseum. I have to tell you, I was blown away. And the thing that I was remarking to people about is the fan experience. Uh, you had a situation; it was packed. The stadium was filled, twenty-five to thirty thousand people. Uh, everybody in in the stadium was wearing the black shirts for the LAFC team. You had sections of the stadium in the stands that were 
all in unison cheering, waving flags and banners, uh, and and it was it was and it was a very diverse, uh, multi-ethnic um, uh, group, and everybody got along. Everyone was having a great time. It really, if they, I said to Don afterwards, I mean, if there's ever a case to be made for the power of sports as a convening, um, uh, you know, a form of content uh, and the value, the value in that, um, it was at that experience. So um, we're definitely seeing, you know, guys are doing a great job. You know, these leagues and these teams are, are, and these rights holders are really going out of their way to try to deliver that value proposition. And so I think so far we're doing. Uh, when I look across the country, I think we're doing pretty well. Certainly vis-a-vis. You know our counterparts in Europe. I think you know the U.S. is definitely ahead of ahead of the world in this. You just fell right into my next question. Uh, outside, you mentioned, of course, the Steinbrenner family gets it, but what other owners out there get it? As in, this is going to be the future of sports. Yeah, look, I, I'd say a, a lot of them do. I mean, we talked about the Kraft family; um, they they really get it. Um, obviously, the Jones family in Dallas get it. Um, you know, Josh Harris and David Blitzer have done a tremendous job uh, with Scott O'Neill uh, in Philadelphia. Uh, so, you know, I, I'd say, you know, everyone gets it. It's just a question of uh, where people are on on their pri- the priorities of, of, you know, building and owning these teams. I will tell you, buying one of these teams today is not for the faint of heart. This is, this is like what I do in my corporate life. This is buying a company. It's a, now they're multi-billion-dollar companies. Uh, the names that I mentioned, you know, it's amazing about those names. The, the, the names I mentioned, you know, these are the, the Steinbrenners and the Joneses and the Crafts. I mean, you know, these are iconic families and, and owners in sports. They managed to buy at a time where the aggregate dollars in today's world are, were, were more manageable. But you know, if you listen to all their anecdotes around that original purchase, you know, these were all cash flow negative businesses, and there's a lot of work to do. Today, the entry price is multi-billion dollar, uh, and the stakes are higher, um, and and it's just very, you know, I, I'd say it's very um, uh, difficult to try to hit all of these things all at once. And so, when you buy a team, you sort of have to take your time to sort of figure out how do you know how do we, all these guys who buy teams, they're wealthy and they've made money in their respective industries, and then they come over and they're just basically buying into a whole new industry. Uh, and there's a learning curve that goes with that. So I would say, based on everyone I've always talked to, people get it. It's just a question of, you know, how do they, how do they prioritize and how do they time, you know, getting to all of these things that they need to do. Well, you talk about trying to buy a team. Yeah, ask anybody in the contest for the Carolina Panthers. Right now, Scott and I, we had about a couple of 20s in our wallet, and we got as, <laughs> as far as trying to get the football, and that's about it. I, I don't see how people today – can buy a team like this, like you said. Yeah, you know, I I, I, I agree with you. I think, you know, when you look at the uh, EPL in Europe, um, Russian oligarchs, uh, Middle Eastern sheikhs, you have to ask yourself, you know, how do you compete in that ecosystem when you come over here uh, and you look at the, the prices that these teams are going for and you look at the rules that m- many of these leagues have that require a certain minimum ownership for the control owner, uh, a limit on the number of owners, and a limit on the amount of debt that you can deploy, and also a restriction on any kind of institutional capital going in, you're really, the question that I'm thinking about is how do you continue a linear progression in these asset valuations? Uh, there's no doubt that this content is valuable. There's no doubt that there's a scarcity value attached to these teams. 
There's no doubt that um, we've had labor peace, we've had media rights deals. Uh, you know, all the elements for continued value progression are there. But when you start to see these other restrictions uh, around league rules that, that guide and determine ownership, you're really pushing ownership to a very rare level of just mega wealth. Uh, and there's only so much of that. And so, you know, that and the other point I'd make is I just think that when these teams get sold, I think there needs to be a coordination between the team owner and the league. I, I don't think it's healthy to have these teams just on their own unilaterally selling. I think there needs to be, when someone buys a team, I just think there needs to be something in the contract, in the purchase agreement that says when you sell, um, there will be a coordinated selling effort between the team owner and the, and the leagues. Um, because, you know, there's, this, this is, once again, I go back to the concept of some of the parts being greater than the whole, and I think how these sales go, the pricing, uh, and making sure there's there's adult supervision and responsibility, and we don't see some huge spike in pricing that is ahead of itself. All that kind of stuff really needs to be thought of for the collective good of the whole. We are chatting with Jerry Cardinal of Redbird Capital. And, Jerry, for, for those who might have heard what you just said, I'm going to try and boil it down. The Buffalo Bills sold at 1.4 a couple of years ago. You're now looking at around 2526 for the Carolina Panthers with the underpinnings pretty much similar. I'm not sure why you get from 1.4 to 2.5 in such little time. But if you want that value progression, what you're saying is the rules are limiting the available buyers. Like David Tepper is in the mix, but he's the only one of the whales that's in the mix. If you're going to sell these sorts of assets, don't you want three, four, five, six David Tepper's bidding? Look, from from just a process, an auction process uh, standpoint, the answer is yes. I would tell you from, you know, a methodology standpoint, from a substantive standpoint, uh, I'm looking at the Buffalo Bills being sold at one four back in, you know, what was it six years ago, seven years ago, uh, and then you see the step up to the, the numbers that you're talking about around the Panthers. And I don't, think anyone spends, I don't think anybody spends enough time talking about how that bridge occurs. Um, and one of the things that I'm looking at is, you know, is there a way that we can help prospective owners look at buying into these teams and not just leave after they buy it, but work with them, not only co-underwrite a business plan on the way in, but help, but also own it with them going forward. That's how people. I need to start thinking that way because you know the concept of just an auction, where you know I call it the Forbesification of of the, of these assets trading, where you know you basically look at where the last trade was. You you know you you look at what where things are on the Forbes list. You mark it up thirty percent, and that's your methodology. You know when you start getting the multi-billion-dollar assets, that's just irresponsible. You can't do it. Uh, and it's what I was saying earlier, which is that you know people need to step back, and there needs to be a coordination between individual team owners, leagues, um, capital, uh, bankers, where everybody you know is is communicating. You know, one of the things I want to do is always communicate, like we're doing here, and try to get the word out on experiences and data points and analytics. Start thinking a little bit more of exactly what you said, Scott, which is like, what's the bridge between one four and Buffalo and the mid twos in in Carolina? I mean, you know, how how, how does that work and and what does that mean going forward in terms of potential returns and the, the health of the business? And what does it mean also in terms of the rules, in terms of ownership and minimum ownership for the control and the number of owners and the debt limit, et cetera? So it's definitely something that's going to have to start to get looked at. I feel we're getting sort of to the, the tipping point here where all of that's going to need to be looked at and, and potentially adjusted. 
if I'm a prospective owner of a pro f- franchise and I come to you, Jerry Cardinal, and I say, all right, I want a team. I'm looking at sort of this Thomas Friedman world is flat world where someone in China or India may want to pony up 99 cents for highlights from my league, from my team. I want to take my brand global. Jerry, I want value for my investment. Where are you pointing me? What league, what sport, what team? Where should I get my best value? Hmm. It's great. You know, I think about that a lot. It's a great question. You know, look, I, I would say it's funny, you know, when, when people look at buying into teams in the U.S. and they ask themselves that question, there's, there's, there's this current prevailing buzz that, you know, there's a lot of headwinds facing the NFL. There's a lot of tailwinds facing the NBA. Um, the NBA seems to have the momentum right now. And when I ask people, well, why is that? There's some of the, the, the noise around the NFL on, on some of the, you know, the, the, the concussion stuff and things like that. I think that they will work through that. Uh, it's more about the globalization potential of the NBA. A lot of people that I talk to say that um, you know, bas- professional basketball in the United States is the one uh, um, league that, and the one product that can travel globally, particularly in China. And interestingly, in China, when you know, I spent a bunch of time in China, when you go over there uh, and you ask people, well, why is it that the NBA play, plays well in China? I always thought it was Michael Jordan. I always thought it was the fact that you know, there, there are a lot of tall people in China and they play basketball. No, it's, it's really simple. It's Yao Ming. Uh, <laughs> he's an icon over there. Yep. They love the he fact. Made, he made a world of difference. Over here. Oh, made a world of difference. So, you know, look, I'll tell you, Scott, I, I think that I personally believe that you can make the case for every one of these leagues. I think that you know it's today. If you're looking at an NBA team trading at two billion dollars, if you look at an NFL team trading at two billion dollars, if you look at an NHL and, an, and, and a um, uh, Major League Soccer team trading in the five hundreds, right? I mean, is there you know they're all they're all facing the same thing for their respective economics, which is that I think you need to go in there and you need to have a business plan, and you don't need to work, rely on China, you don't need to re- rely on globalization. Uh, to the comments earlier, you know. Just, just what we're doing with on location, thinking about the next frontier in data analytics, fan monetization, uh, put, you know, creating new revenue opportunities around team ownership. There's a, there's more than enough to do here in the states. You know, for, you know, in looking at investing in these teams, going back to my point earlier on the rules, I would say, you know, it's 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 one thing to be the control owner, but if you are you know not the control owner, you know, how do you how do you feel about having to write a nine figure check? Uh, and you know what kind of governance do you get, and what kind of you know responsibilities do you get, and does you know does, does, does this need to be more of a collaborative group ownership or just a unilateral control ownership? It's a lot of that that you, that needs to be worked out. Jerry Curtin, out. Thank you so much. You have graced us with uh, a lot of knowledge, and uh, you have so many titles. I should add too that you bring so much to the table with this. Thank you so much, sir. Absolutely, it was great talking to you guys. Thanks so much, Michael. My takeaway from Jerry Cardinal there's this tipping point coming. You wonder when do the numbers not work out on the back of the napkin. You're talking 2-5 for the Carolina Panthers, and you're just wondering with some headwinds, what is driving the valuations of these franchises? It can't just be, for the long term, the scarcity value. Well, there aren't that many of them. At some point, you have to make money on these investments, and we saw some problems with the Miami Marlins with the number that was paid there. Uh, Jerry crystallizes it. There, if you want this progression to continue, you better come up with some new revenue streams. Yeah, uh, that's the same thing I was thinking about. Is Genius. How, how, I, uh, see, <laughs> Vulcan mind meld. <laughs> I, I just wonder, it's like, how can these teams 
continue to exist. Like you said, you have to make money at some point, and you have to have people to step up to be able to pay this money. And you're talking about shakes and and many movers and shakers who have said, you know what, I, I, I don't need this. Thank you very much. Well, you talked about a world where it really is only Mid- Middle Eastern shakes who can buy these teams and come in and bid, or a Chinese billionaire, Russian oligarch. There's only so many. And when you're limiting that buyer pool, you wonder when the numbers start to come down. We got a shot, though. I'm telling you, you put your lottery tickets together, we can buy... The goalpost. I'll wait for you to cash in your fortune. <laughs> or or dare I dare I just say, depart. <laughs> My goal is to be the number one pick. That's something I've been dreaming of since kids. It feels better to be number one than number five. I wear the number because of Mike. We have a chance to go for three in a row. Good numbers at a good time. When I first started wearing that number, I was just happy and proud. Bloomberg Business and Sports, the number of the week. Time now for the number of the week, and the number is two. Now, full disclosure and in transparency to our listeners whom we respect, we do sometimes talk about these ahead of time. Not always. When you go NASCAR on me, I'll let you do that all by yourself. <laughs> but we decided that we wanted to chat about Saquon Barkley going at number two because the response in New York has been so great. Like Common wisdom says running back, top pick, no, don't do it. This kid resonates. Well, this you're talking about one of the best running backs to come into the game in a long time. The Giants know, hope. Yes, we, yeah, we hope so, for the Giants' sake. Yes, I know you have to always plug up the O-line. I mean, I, I, that continues on, but this kid is something special. What we know is the fans think so because he has sold more jerseys than any rookie in NFL history. So the optimism among the fan base – is there now I feel like Odell Beckham Jr. when he made that catch on on, national TV if this kid goes out and with the smile and he lights it up you're looking at perhaps the new face of sports in New York well that's the bold statement right there that would be the quote right I think you're looking he's got that kind of potential I've got you on tape saying this don't destroy the tape okay You've been listening to Bloomberg Business of Sports. We're here each and every week at the same time exploring the world of money and sports. I'm Michael Barr. And I'm Scott Soschnick. Thanks for joining us. Please tune in next week when we speak with the biggest and brightest in the sports business industry. You're listening to Bloomberg Business of Sports from Bloomberg Radio, around the world and online as an Apple podcast on iTunes. 